Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Now we have work to do in the book of Matthew. So if you would open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the 18th chapter, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. And Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe! So his fellow slave, so his fellow slave fell to the fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Now, some people did ask me this question, but if you had asked me this morning when I came into church this morning, Andy, I see you're preaching. What are you preaching on? And I had said, Matthew 18. What would you have assumed the topic would have been? Now, they answered me at the 8 o'clock service. So. Okay, okay, right. Um, and those two are linked together, this passage, with one word, discipline. It's the church discipline handbook. As we always go back to Matthew 18. Anytime anybody's, for example, this is a misuse, anytime anybody's offended by what somebody is promoting in internet land, and they write an article, say, oh, I don't know, Warhorn Media, for example, uh, criticizing some policy of a church or some actions of a pastor or some conference or what have you. Somebody always shows up in the pastors and elders group on Facebook and saying, well, have you gone to them in person? You know, have you done Matthew 18 with them? You know, so everybody knows Matthew 18 is where you go to resolve personal conflict. Now, the error, of course, is a public 
you know, public sins need public rebukes so that others aren't led astray. <clears throat> but everybody knows this is Matthew 18, you know, church discipline. If I had said, and this also is true, what, Andy, what are you preaching on? Forgiveness. What chapter of the Bible would you have thought I was preaching on? Would you have just assumed Matthew 18? Yeah, probably not. I wouldn't either have uh, before I prepared this sermon. But it's there. And the two follow one right after another. And so that's where we need to process this is that in Matthew 18, Jesus has just said, this is how you address sin between you and other people. Go to them. Have a face-to-face. -face. Talk to them. You know, don't do a Facebook post about, you know, some people are just awful. You know, go to them personally and handle it. And if that doesn't happen, then, and, and they go through the whole church discipline, whole thing. And then it comes into Peter's mind, well, how often shall my brother sin against me and I discipline him? Pursue discipline. How often does my brother have to come to me and I have to rebuke him and then get a couple other guys from the church and then draw the, ask the elders and how often? He doesn't ask that. But he knows that it's connected to what Jesus has just said. How often shall my brother sin against me and I Forgive him. Peter knows they're connected. Do you? Do I? Do we think about discipline that way? Do we think about forgiveness and discipline being woven together so that not only is a sinner converted and repents and finds healing from Christ, but so that the offended actually has a way of saying, I have pursued as much as I am able a situation, you know, forgiveness from me. You know, some, some of our outward actions, we don't just move ourselves by just thinking hard about it. I'm going to try to forgive you. Can't do that. But Jesus has given us tracks to run on so that as we pursue the other man's restoration, we're also working out forgiveness in a very real way. It's kind of like what C.S. Lewis talks about with prayer, you know, where people don't want to kneel um, because they feel like, well, I can, it doesn't matter what posture I pray. And he says, well, yeah, sometimes your body needs to move your soul in the way that you think your soul needs to move your body. Sometimes our relationships need to be moved by our voice and by our hands and by our faces looking at each other, not just you know, in our prayer closet alone. Lord, help me forgive, help me forgive, help me forgive. You know, go to them and set the machine in motion. You need it. You need that discipline process as much as the person who sinned against you so that you can forgive. But it's difficult. We often like to say when somebody says, um, I'm sorry, that's oh, no problem. I'm sorry I did that to you. Oh, it's, it's nothing, no big deal. But it is a big deal. We like to shrug our shoulders. We would like to do that because it's easier to do that than actually approach somebody that we've offended and seek reconciliation. It's, it's a lot easier to do that than to go to the person who's offended us and say, you know, when you said that, a, a person who shall remain nameless, um, well, and storyless. I'm not going to tell you that. We don't need to go there. But... Um, 
I can't do that, can I? That's an, I always hate it when preachers do that. Um, so a particular person looked at me about a year ago, and, 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 and we hadn't seen each other in a long time, and just looked at me and he said, I can't believe how old you look. You know? And so I knew I had to move here. He was from here so that we, I wouldn't surprise him anymore by my decrepitude. But you know, people, people say those things and, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And that, that wasn't actually a sin. There, are, there is something to be said for the process spelled out in Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. Uh, because everything that offends us is not a sin, right? And I wasn't offended by that either. I just I thought it was really funny. Um, but then I trimmed my beard and shaved. And, you know. But um, look, Peter knows that these two are, I don't know why I told you that now. I can't, it's not in here. So um, anyway, engaging in the work of discipline with an eye to reclaiming the saving of the straying brother is loving him. Reconciliation is the goal, not just him to Christ, but me to him. Because once we start down this road of offenses, there are innumerable switches that get thrown where if I if, if you sin against me, I, I, there's a, a little invisible switch that goes click, and forever after that, I remember, that's the guy that hurt me when I see him. And I've sinned against people because I know people. I've sinned against people, and then I've known it, and there's a little switch that goes click in me. And now every time I see that person, I know I hurt that guy, and he knows it, and he remembers it. And if he's like me, he thinks about that every single time we're together. So, you know, it's nice that we have a process to actually turn that switch back. Okay, there's been sin, but we've dealt with it. And I've forgiven because he responded and I was able to see that and it's done. But we recognize Peter's difficulty. What if my neighbor keeps on slipping back into his habitual lying, cheating, slandering, adultering, gossiping, what if he repents and I forgive him, but he backslides again? Lord Jesus, do you mean I have to go through that whole thing all over again? How many times do I have to have that conversation about it? And Jesus' response is designed not only to show, but to bring out, emphasize how wrongheaded Peter is. And I see myself in Peter's question. Maybe you see yourself in Peter's question. His tendencies are our tendencies. And I have three of them. Uh, maybe you would know of more of them. Um, tell me later. But these are the three tendencies in me that keep me from forgiveness, keep me from pursuing reconciliation. Number one, we have a tendency to throw away the offense, get rid of the offense, brush the offense under the rug by brushing the offender under the rug. And if you don't deal with it when somebody sins against you, you don't have that conversation. But remember, the switch is flipped. You're going to have all kinds of unconscious ways that you keep dealing with it forever. I used to sit over there on Sunday morning. Now I sit way back there. Or I used to sit in the back, but I don't want to see him anymore, so I sit in the front. Or I switch small groups, or um, innumerable little ways, subtle ways of continuing to avoid the person, and we're not really dealing with it. We want to throw away, we're really wanting to throw away the offender, because we throw away things that we don't have a use for, 
and we're really not sure how to continue to have a relationship with the person whose sin we don't know how to deal with. Yesterday, uh, people were asking me down in Charleston what, what it was like, what life was like, and they were asking me about my job. My job right now, in addition to praying about a church plant, is making little chunks of steel into scissors in different degrees and things. So I talked about this grinder, and I, and, uh, and, and I talked to him about, you know, people... Uh, some people's job, they just they sharpen scissors. Some people uh, ship things to the company f- to be sharpened. And, and somebody responded. I don't know if they were joking or not. Oh, scissors aren't, so scissors aren't disposable. <laughs> that never occurred to me before. Of course they're not. But, but that is our, you know, when they get dull, when they don't cut, get another one. Uh, my family has fallen in love with disposable cutlery because we've been moving. And, it's, and now we don't have a dishwasher, and so we like to use things we can just throw away. You know, the costs start to add up, but eh. we like to just be able to get rid of things that we don't know what to do with or that we have are past their prime. We've, we've had a lot of stuff that we've gotten to get rid of because we don't have a use for it, and it's just going to clutter up our lives. People are not disposable. That's earth-shattering, isn't it? Do you have your Bible open? Do you, and if you don't, do you know what passage comes right after this one? Do you know what the topic is? Matthew 19, verse 1, verse, well, verse 3. The Pharisees come to Jesus asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, there's time in Jesus' life and in the apostles' life between what he says in Matthew 18 and what he says in Matthew 19, but for some reason that's not hard to imagine, the Holy Spirit took this passage and wove it right next to the passage about forgiveness. The closer you are to somebody, the more sins. The more sins, the more opportunity to forgive or not. And so it's a natural progression to not addressing the sins in our relationships well and the dissolution of those relationships when once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. We have to handle this well. We want to throw away the offender, but people are not disposable. People are made in the image of God, and our relationships are made to glorify God forever. Secondly, we have a tendency to wait to be able to pounce and exact justice. Imagine if Jesus had said, well, seven, maybe eight times. We would have been able to say every time this person sinned against me, all right, all right, one more time. I'll let you go this one time, but boy, you better Maybe the second time is because you know your background and your habits and everything else, but three strikes and you're out. No, of course, we, we like to hunker down and just wait and say one more thing. And actually, the rabbis gave three, I believe, as the number. If somebody sins against you once, forgive them. Second time, forgive them. Three times, wash your hands and you, know, you can go your way. And so Peter might think that he's being magnanimous, offering seven. Wow, I'm holy. I'm, I'm a seven forgiver. But that's not the character of Jesus, who, while he was hanging on the cross, 
looked at those people that were crucified, working really hard to kill him, and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? They're working off, they're sweating, trying to get that spike through his arms and legs to hoist him up on the cross. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. If Jesus can do that, he's not waiting to pounce. Why are we? Thirdly, and I think this probably gets to many of us, our situation, we have only so much time and only so much emotional energy to deal with it. Um, people sometimes would come by my office in the church in Charleston and they would need financial help. Well, they didn't really need financial help. You know, they didn't need the gas. They didn't need the groceries. They did, but what they really needed was someone who would get involved in their life and share the love of Christ, and, and you could just never get there with some of these people. In fact, some of them would come to someone's office, and I would get a phone call later that day saying, hey, Miss Donna's making the rounds again. Just wanted you to know. You know, she'd been at the Baptist church. She was going to go to the Methodist. She was going to go to the... But to actually make the investment, it's so much easier to give the money. It's so much easier even to go to the store and get a voucher. It's so much easier to do those things. But what we need, especially when a brother or sister has sinned against us, is to invest our time and our emotional energy, energy on pursuing that reconciliation, forgiveness. In fact, one writer did suggest that Jesus' command to go to the offender and try to win him would be an effective deterrent to being easily offended. Once we realized how much work it was to forgive people, we would stop seeing sin everywhere. Wouldn't that be a great deterrent to victim mentality? Oh, you feel victimized? Well, go to him. You know, that guy just said to me, well, honey, maybe you should go and talk to him. Well, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, I'm sure he had his reasons, you know. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know. We want to approach all of our relationships through a rubric of return on investment. If I do deal with this sin, will I get anything back for my efforts? Or are they just going to say the same things that they always say and nothing will ever change. Well, Jesus never lays out to us. Now, depending on how you think they'll respond. So, we got to go. We have to forgive. And Jesus' answer, how often do I, how often um, does my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus says, I don't say to you up to seven, but up to 77 times or seven times What does he say? Seventy times seven. Jesus' answer actually both insults Peter, taking it a certain way, and is designed to invert Peter's thinking and pull it inside out. Okay, we think, and you've seen things inside out, like you know that you see all the seams and you see the ugliness, but you pull it in the way it's supposed to look, and it looks beautiful. Well, the flip side of forgiveness and all the ugly process that has to go along addressing sins is the mercy we get to show to other people because God has shown us mercy in Christ. We're naturally oriented toward justice when it pertains to ourselves, and we like that. But to God, it's like this ugly you know, the, the ugly side of the fabric. And, but we're obsessed with how the stitches are on the other side. So that 
in terms of my personal relationship, I'm always thinking um, that my sins should be dealt with lightly because I have a reason. I mean, you don't know my childhood. I mean, really. And my virtues ought to be rewarded very efficiently. You know, if I do just the tiniest little things, I clean out the coffee pot, you know, my wife should just... I don't know, fix me coffee or something. That's kind of the highest order of reward in my, my mind. But you know, if I do a little thing, everybody just ought to say, wow, thank you. You're a great guy. But if somebody else does that and cleans out the coffee pot or you know, does the whole sink of dishes, then, well, that's what they're supposed to do. Of course. I'm glad that you know, they're caring for me, being a helpmate. Being good children, you know. My virtues ought to be rewarded efficiently. My, the sins against me ought to be punished swiftly. But other people, we don't have that same kind of relationship with. We are sons, naturally, we are sons of our father Lamech. You remember Lamech in the Old Testament? He's a descendant of Cain. Cain is the first murderer he murders his brother Abel, and he, he's shocked by God's punishment of him, and he says, this is too much to bear. Anybody who finds me will kill me, and God says to him, no, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance on him sevenfold. So Cain is, is safe. He's put a, there's a mark on him somewhere. We don't know if it was on his head. I don't know where else it would be. Maybe his hair fell out and people knew to stay away from it. I don't know. But Lamech is a descendant of him, and, La- and, and it just gets worse from Cain on. And so finally, when, when Lamech comes along, he says to his two wives, red alert, his two wives, he says, uh, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. James Montgomery Boyce called this the first gangster rap song. Okay, because vengeance feels so good, we write songs about it. When it was translated into he- from Hebrew to Greek, two hundred years before Jesus born, uh, Jesus' birth, the translators used the phrase seventy times seven which I'm told is an idiom meaning 77. So maybe, just maybe, Jesus is alluding to Lamech when he's addressing Peter's question and saying, Peter, forgive or be Lamech. As Lamech was delighted to pay out vengeance or to see that guy get what's coming to him, you are to be like Christ, loving to pour out mercy. Lamech wanted somebody to be punished 77 times. You hunger and desire opportunity to show mercy to people as often as they sin against you. Our nature needs to be shifted from being careful accountants of sin to being generous benefactors of mercy. And Jesus' answer is also, so it's designed to turn Peter's thinking, but it's also a very vicious caricature on Peter's position. Have you ever gotten mad reading what I just read? I mean, if you've ever asked, how long do I have to put up with so-and-so, getting it wrong? 
And all it takes for you to ask that question is to have a child, okay? This is not some outlier situation that some poor sap is being sinned against all the time. If he has kids, he's being sinned against. And if you have been a kid, you're being sinned against, okay? All it takes is for you to have a relationship with somebody in the world. And you're in this situation, and you have been tempted to ask this question. And so when Jesus says, all right, good question, you're like somebody who owes his employer 10,000 talents. Now, in, in, my, in my notes, in my Bible, it says that a talent is equal to 15 years' wages of a, of a day laborer. So I just did some mental computation. Not mental computation. I don't know why I said that. I don't do any mental computation. I wrote it up. And I worked it out. And according to what, you know, the average, you know, shift worker makes today, this, is, this comes out to something like $3 billion. $3 billion he owes to his master. The specific number doesn't matter, but keep in your mind $3 billion because Jesus is trying to shock us into knowing what's going on in our hearts when we question whether we ought to forgive somebody. You owe $3 billion. Uh, somebody else writing on that. I don't know how people figure this out, but this, this in the day would be equivalent to 8,600 people each carrying 60 pounds of coins in a procession five miles long. This is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. A big debt. And then Jesus tells a story about this guy being in such a horrible debt, not forgiving the guy that owes him 100 bucks, which again is a rough equivalent of what the number he uses. $3 billion in the hole, and he doesn't forgive somebody $100 debt. Why does he do that? He makes us sound like monsters. That's not the question Peter's asking. Peter's just asking about, you know, sins. Why does Jesus do that? Well, you know that this is what everybody does when they're arguing a position. You paint your opponent your opponent's position in the most negative light possible. You opposed to abortion? You're a woman hater, right? I mean, this is how it works. Well, it's a legitimate strategy when it's a legitimate issue and it's a legitimate, and who's going to argue that Jesus is not arguing a legitimate position? Okay, Peter, you don't want to forgive, forgive somebody? You're like... And then he gives the parable. Well, in the parable, he also uses another, a number, uh, another number. Okay, I, maybe it's because I'm a mathematician. I don't know that Jesus is actually referring to this story, but the only other time in Scripture where 10,000 talents occurs is the book of Esther. Remember Esther, the villain in Esther is Haman. Haman is offended that Esther's uncle Mordecai does not bow down to him. Haman is a royal official in the court of King Artaxerxes. Hazarus. I know Haman, right? Haman is offended that there's one guy, there's a law, you have to bow to Haman. There's one guy in all the kingdom that doesn't bow every time he sees Haman come by, and that's Mordecai. So he's offended. His indignation stews, and it leads him to ask the king to slaughter all of the Jews, not just that guy. But that one guy is still singled out. Haman builds a gallows 70 feet tall for Haman, for, for Mordecai. 
But when it comes time for Haman to be caught in a transgression and he falls on the couch to beg for mercy, does Haman find mercy? No. Haman hangs on his own gallows. What's the connection? Well, to fund the the extermination of the Jews, Haman offers to put up 10,000 talents of his own money. So we could almost say Jesus is calling Peter Haman or saying, Peter, you go on forgiving or you're a Haman. Lamech, Haman, those are not, that's not good company to keep. And if we're tempted to think, well, I'm not, I'm not that. Jesus is, the whole point of what Jesus is saying is, yes, you are. My father will do the same to you if you don't forgive other people when they sin against you, right? So there's no getting around it. You and I are that bad. We need another way of approaching this maybe because we, have, uh, we live in a place and are under an economy that, is, that functions on debt. I saw the comic several years ago where one congressman turns to the other and he says, what comes after a trillion? You know, we're used to debt. We're used to big numbers. We don't even think about them anymore. They don't make sense to us. Let's think about it another way. Um, the 5th of August, 2010, there was a copper mine in Chile, or Chile, that caved in and trapped several, several workers 2,300 feet underground. Do you remember this? For more than two weeks, 17 days or so, the world was pretty sure the miners were all killed in the collapse. The company didn't have a good track record. There had been other fatal accidents recently. So they launched a half-hearted rescue operation because you've got to do something for your workers. And it was nearly abandoned because of the cost and the low likelihood of success. Remember, return on investment. Yeah. Finally, the government took over. And before long, many governments were helping with the effort. But on the 22nd day of August, 17 days after the collapse, they're 2,000 feet underground. Nobody knows exactly where they are or if they still are in the world. 17 days after the collapse, they pulled a drill bit back from the surface and there was a note attached to it. We are all here safe, the 33. So they knew how many guys were there, that they, were all, they all made it, and they're all still there. And so, of course, a worldwide effort focused on this, and they finally got them all out, and they were pretty much no worse for the wear. Well, they were a little worse for the wear, but they, rec- they recovered. They got kind of thin, but they had, they had stayed together. Point is, they had a mountain on top of them. They were gone from the world. And they had to know it was three miles from the entrance to where we are. Nobody knows where we are. Our rations are running out. They were lost. Now that is lost. Couldn't communicate with anybody. I don't know what that was like. We can only imagine, praise God, we can only imagine what that's like. 
you and I, I mean, it was so bad, right? The book of Revelation says at one point in history, at the last moments of history, some people will wish they had that rather than the wrath of the Lamb, right? Oh, mountains come fall on us. But I don't know what that was like. They were lost beyond recovery. You and I are born under a mountain. At first, maybe just a little bit, but we're born into sin and into death and condemnation and all the things that go along with it. And we have a tool that we know we have, and it's a shovel, and we can dig down as deep as we want to go. That's not helping us. You know, pay back what you owe. I'm going to get out of debt, a $3 billion debt, by wringing $100 a time out of my fellow laborers. You know, and that's what we always do. Our solution is just digging us deeper because one of the things that we do is we blame the other guy. I'm in all this trouble before God because you, because my dad did this, my mom did that, my sisters did, my employer did, my. It's everybody else's fault. And all the time we just dig ourselves down deeper under the mountain and we're lost. And finally, Jesus has found us. Okay, we're speaking to brothers and sisters in the Lord. You're found. You're rescued beyond all previous hope. All that debt is forgiven, and you come up into the light of day. Why would you not want that and to celebrate that with everyone else around you? And what do you care about that missing hundred dollars when you've been set free forever? My heavenly Father will do this to you. Because why? Because you have completely forgotten who you are and who God your Father is. And you are borrowing the good things God has given you every day. Your life and your breath and your relationships. Every good thing that God gives you, you use to set against him. And you've been doing that since the day you were born. And finally he releases that you from that. How could you go back to that? That's the ultimate debt swap. Here's another way of getting at it. Because I know that some people are sitting there thinking of their particular situation. And there are, you know, there's the run of the mill sins. And then there's sins. And there is real pain and we don't want to be trite about it, but we also want to do with it what the Bible does with it. The Bible is just a little book. I mean, really. Have you ever been and visited a lawyer? (laughs) They have like 300 of these behind them, behind their desk, about what? About case law. This is the law, but in this situation it was applied this way because of these extenuating circumstances. If the arresting officer forgets to do this, if, if the, the, the judge and jury decide this, if the offended you know, plea bargains this way, if the, but in light of this state's laws and this state's laws and where this people came, there's, and it's just a labyrinth of special cases and special pleading, and that's what we want to do with God's law. So when he says forgive, we say, well, yeah, usually, but... And we revert to case law. He doesn't do that. He says forgive. Period. But, but, 
but the way I grew up, but my DNA, but my condition, but my doctors prescribed, but... Um, in Charleston, we lived catacornered from a, a family. It was a mother and a son. And the son was in his 50s, uh, late 50s, I think, when he passed. And he was um, somebody that everyone looked down on and steered clear of. Not because he was dangerous, although when we moved there, we thought, what's this guy's story? You know, he was just, he was a little off, okay? And he wouldn't mind me saying that about him. He admitted it, sort of proudly. We would have conversations where um, he, he, every time I walked out into the yard and tried to do something, you're doing that wrong, you know? Okay, okay, well, Mac, how do I do it? And he would, he would tell me, and so he was a little irritated. But one day, this amicable relationship witnessed uh, what was really in his heart. A, a neighbor drove by, a friend, mutual friend, friend, and said, hey, how's your sister? To my f- neighbor. And a stream of just profanity and bitterness and hate just, well, they ain't no good. And it was like blowing your hair back. And then he turns back to me and tries to continue the conversation. I said, well, what was that all about? And he goes back into his family history and all the things that his family's done wrong with him. And finally, you know, after years of trying to engage the gospel, you know, Romans 8, let's try Romans 8. Well, you and he, well, I went to the Baptist church, and so, you know, he wasn't going to talk to the Presbyterian minister about anything, even though he didn't go to the Baptist church for 40 years. Finally, mercy of mercies, death breaks out in our town. It was 2013, 2000, early 2014, and just people just started dying left and right. Old people, young people. We, we lost a three-month-old in our congregation. We lost the beloved 90-year-old doctor in town, lived just down the street, and everybody, every kind of person in between. They just started dropping. And there was a funeral, I think, every two weeks for three or four months uh, at one point that I was officiating, not, in, not counting other pastors in the community. We were just burying neighbors my neighbors and his neighbors and then his turn comes and the doctors tell him well you your liver's not going to last very much longer and fine okay finally it's do or die we got to get this taken care of so I walk over I say, I say well Mac are you ready he said yeah I'm ready I ain't afraid of I went to Sunday school I have just, you know the Lord taught us to pray do you pray well, yeah, sometimes. You know what he taught us to pray? And I took him through the Lord's Prayer. And at the end, I, I, I punched Jesus' words. What does Jesus say right after the Lord's Prayer is over? For if you, because he has that forgive us our debts as we forgive our, our debtors. If you forgive men their, when they trespass against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't, your Heavenly Father won't forgive you. And unbeknownst to me, it wasn't just his family. It was... His entire way of relating to people was keeping track of wrongs. And finally, tears started flowing. And over the next few weeks, he started coming to grips with that. It wasn't like, well, I forgive him. You know, it was, I've been thinking about what you said last time, and it's hard, it's hard. And a lot of them were dead. He, he couldn't go to them. And it was hard for him to forgive, and it was hard for him to believe he'd forgiven. 
But finally, before the end, I think as much as it was possible, and all things are possible with God, he was able to forgive. Now, we later on moved into the house right across the street from him, and as we were moving in, I opened a box of letters that I found, and turns out it was, it was letters that his dad had written to his mom when he was deployed in World War II. Wow. And you would think, love letters, this is going to be sweet. Well, guess where he got his bitter disposition? Okay. I had to stop reading. It was just terrible. Complained about everything. But, hey, of course, he grew up that way. How else was he supposed to process the world? Okay, warning to parents. Your children will be like you. But warning to every single one of you, Jesus doesn't say forgive 70 times 7, I mean, assuming you had a normal childhood, because you know, maybe you don't know how. He says do it or else. Or else what? I mean, what does he describe? Hand it over to the torturers till he can repay? Who can repay $3 billion from jail? This man's going to hell. Right? Because he won't forgive. Well, justification by grace through faith alone. Maybe, you know, I mean, I can hold one grudge, but I'm forgiven by faith. He, the Bible doesn't wrestle all that out for us for a reason. You and I are to fear God who has forgiven us every one of our transgressions and cast them as far from us as the east is from the west so that now we can say, if that's true of us, I forgive you. Because who cares what you've done for me? And I don't have any problem approaching you when I think you've wronged me because I have a great salvation I want to share with you forever and ever and ever and ever. And I don't want little things tripping you up or tripping me up. And if we go into all our case studies about how our parents treated us or how our husband or wife or whatever did and all the excuses we have, we're going to miss it. Your salvation is not you just realizing something from your study of the Word of God. It is a supernatural work. God has come to earth to die on a cross, to forgive you, to wash you with his Son's own precious blood. He has given you the Holy Spirit, who is not a psychologist and will not wrestle with you in terms of psychology. He will make you a new creature. We've talked about justification at the beginning of Romans. Right now we're in sanctification. And along with those two is the word. What's the other word? Glorification. You're wrong. But you're right. You've been prepped for glorification because you've been hearing that all along. What's glorification? It's when we enter the presence of the Lord. Sin is no more. What fits us for glorification and helps us with sanctification and is immediately ours at the moment of our justification is another word, adoption. What's adoption? I have a new father. Which means... I have a new childhood, which means I have a new home, 
and everything else that goes along with that. We're nostalgic for our homes. Our homes have a power over us. Some of us are nostalgic. Some of us are very bitter. But I'll tell you one who is from one who is nostalgic. I remember growing up, and uh, when I was in, in you know, boiling in Mississippi, Mississippi's a wonderful place, but it gets hot. And I, w- I would think some days back to my childhood where we used to sleep with the windows open and the breeze would blow in and I could hear the maple trees outside and I could hear the curtains moving on the curtain rod and I would wake up and I did the smell of the air, I could remember that. And I thought, wow, that's home. I got a little disturbing kick. Uh, day before yesterday, I went back to Charleston, Mississippi. And after you know, driving for so long, we, we finally get out and I open the door to our home, to our house, the house we used to live in. And immediately when I walk in, you can, I mean, when you go home, you can feel your blood pressure drop. I'm home. I'd lived there six months in that house, but suddenly it was home. Now listen, here's the promise in this. Anywhere can be home. Jesus has saved you. You have a new father. You get to do childhood again. You get to learn new house rules. And you get to be trained. And what Jesus is saying here, and why he hammers home forgiveness so much, is it's his character, and it's his heavenly father's character, and it is the scent, it is the aroma of heaven where you're going, of your glorified state. And you can have it now. And you don't need to be held back by what you had when you were a child or what you experienced or what somebody else did to you. You can right now start building up a nostalgia. Remember when I had this conflict with so-and-so and I forgave him. Remember when I went to somebody and I was afraid. I didn't know how they were going to take it, but he forgave me. And that's the aroma, that's the house rules. That's what it feels like to be at the table. We're not doing communion this week. But think about this next week. That's, that's how it feels to be at the table with Jesus, is to forgive. And you and I get a chance now to build up all those nostalgic memories of how Jesus has brought us through one conflict after another because we're able to forgive others when they sin against us. And we've seen other people forgive us. We see Jesus working through other people to do for us from human eyes what he does for us in heaven. Thomas Watson says, Godliness puts a man in heaven before his time. That's what we're talking about. Why do I have to still live in this sinful world? Why do I still have to have sin in me after I'm saved? Well, at least one reason is that you can go on experiencing and paying forward you know, the grace of Jesus Christ to each other sweet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not only preparing a home for us, you're preparing us for our home. And along the way, you've given us this home, the church, where we get to deal with one another And we get to face each other with our sins. We get to face each other with the grace that you've shed abroad, the love that you've shed abroad in our hearts. 
We get to be stewards of the good things that Jesus Christ died to secure for us. We get to, we get to show those things to other people. Help us to delight in this sweet gift. Help us, Father, to be known because of the way that we love one another. Not by ignoring sin, but by facing it bravely and with great hope. Knowing that it's not the sweetest thing in the world never to be sinned against. It's the sweetest thing in the world to be reconciled to other sinners who then can help us on our way. Thank you for this great gift, Father. Keep us faithful to you in all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.